Hey everyone, welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. My name is Frank. Uh, it's good to see all of you. If I don't know you or if you're a visitor here, please uh, do stick around. We'd love to get to know you. There is a fellowship lunch after the service, um, after we're all, all done. So um, please do come to lunch as well. We'd love to feed you uh, for free, of course, um, and get to know you as well. Uh, but let's turn our attention to God's word. So if you would turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Yeah, it's a long word. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did, did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we get to come and be in your presence, to hear from your word, to hear about the way that we are blind the way that you yet feed us and heal us of that blindness. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak, that we might hear and that we might see you uh, and see the wonders of your gospel and the wonders of your glory. And so, Lord, bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, have you ever missed something that was, like, directly in front of you? So, I often go looking for keys right? And I'll check everywhere, right? The key hook? No. The kitchen? No. Chair uh, just inside the door? Nope. Uh, old pants pockets that I wore yesterday? No. 
okay? And finally, I'll end up asking my wife, have you seen my keys? And she'll say, they're in your pocket, they're hanging out. I'm like, seriously? They're like right there? Come on. Um, I swear, I'm like blind sometimes to things that are just obvious to everyone else. And that's how we feel this morning about the disciples and the Pharisees, right? They just seem to miss things that are right in front of their faces. But thankfully, Jesus does not leave them nor us in our blindness, though I imagine we'll probably keep losing our keys. At, at least I will. So uh, this morning, we'll be taking things a little bit backwards. Um, we're going to start with verses 11 through 21 and to talk about blindness and the Pharisees and the disciples first. And then we're going to be heading back to verses 1 through 10 to talk about bread and what Jesus is going to do. So blindness first. Um, the Pharisees and the disciples are a special kind of blind, right? They just, you read it and you're like, really? Come on. So let's start with the Pharisees in verse 11. They were asking for a sign from Jesus. And what's our first reaction? Our first reaction is, what do they think he's been doing all this time? I mean, Jesus is a walking, talking, miracle machine, right? Everywhere he goes, he's healing people, he's casting out demons, raising people from the dead, making bread, right? And he literally, you know, just finished feeding 4,000 people from a few loaves and fishes. What more could they possibly want? But I think if we give them a little slack and we go a little bit deeper, we'll see just what they're asking. You see, the, the miracles that are recorded in Mark aren't actually treated as signs. They're not signs, technically speaking. You see, back in the day, signs had a very specific technical definition. They were a specific type of miracle that would then be fulfilled. So it's essentially calling your own shot, right? You prophesy here that this thing's going to happen, and then it happens almost immediately. And so you think of Gideon asking, uh, God to verify his call by having the fleece be wet in the morning and the ground be dry um, as well. That's a sign, right, where you're asking for a verification. And all the things that Jesus had been doing aren't signs because he hadn't, you know, been calling his shot, so to speak. And so the Pharisees are simply asking Jesus to prove himself with a sign that clearly displays where his power is coming from. It was an accepted practice to determine one's authenticity back in the day. Okay? And so to them, the wonders and works that Jesus is doing simply beg the question of where that power is coming from. He's not performing his signs, he's performing works. Okay? And so they want to use their own categories to understand Jesus. And so that seems reasonable enough, right? You see it, it doesn't, it's not a sign, I want to know, so I'm just going to ask. Sounds reasonable. But just one of the problems that they have is that they've already made up their minds. Remember back to Mark 3. There the scribes from Jerusalem have already seen his great works and attributed Jesus' power not to God but to Satan. And Jesus seemingly put that accusation to bed in Mark 3. But now again the Pharisees are taking it back up. They want him to prove himself according to their own categories of proof. They want him to, be, to make clear who he is, not on his terms, but on their terms. And really, this kind of public display of power on their terms to authenticate his identity, it's temptation. 
And it's the same kind of temptation that Jesus undergoes when he go, undergoes his great temptation in the wilderness, right? Back then, in, Mark 4, in Matthew chapter 4, what do we see? We see the devil taking Jesus to the top of the, the, top of the temple and to say, cast yourself down because the scripture says that you won't get hurt and you will prove that you are the son of God. It's the same idea that there's proof that he's, they're asking him to prove himself. But Jesus knows better, right? And this is why he doesn't give them a sign. He's not here to prove to you, to me, or to the Pharisees who he is. That's not why he comes. He's here to save you, me, and maybe a few Pharisees, right? His works aren't proofs. They're acts of love. And as we've said over and over again when discussing his miracles, the power he displays is always in the service of caring for people around him. And as we think about what's motivating the Pharisees' quest for proof, we see that they're trying to figure out what they're up against. Right? They're scouting out the competition for power, hoping for a weakness that they can exploit. And so this quest isn't really about Jesus at all. It's about them. It's about their position, their authority. Everything that the Pharisees do is all about them. They want to understand on their terms who Jesus is because they want to know how it will impact them. Do you see how wildly insecure they feel? And this is really sad because they would have gotten everything they wanted if they had just come to Jesus for Jesus, right? In Jesus, they would have found everything that they could have wanted, security, a spiritual power beyond compare, and an eternal authority, for we as Christians will rule with Christ after the final judgment. Everything that they wanted, they would have found fulfilled in Christ, if only they would have come to Christ for Christ. And so Jesus isn't out to prove himself to you or to me, and because proving oneself is always a self-motivated endeavor, right? Proving oneself is all really about you. And so Jesus is radically humble in that he doesn't really think about himself much. He's all in on his quest for you. And interestingly, while he goes out to save you and me, he reveals who he is. While he goes about being all about others, he proves what he can do while he does it. And so the issue in the end is the Pharisees' own self-centeredness. It's the attitude of needing God to make sense in my own categories before believing, of needing to put Jesus in my box, to be able to fully understand him on my own terms. And do you see the fundamental arrogance of testing God? Remember, the, the text says that the Pharisees tested God. That means that they are judging God, right? That they're judging Jesus. Do you see the arrogance of demanding that Jesus prove himself to, on our own terms? That's the leaven that Jesus is talking about. And there's a foundational unbelief that has pervaded the religious leaders from back before the exile all the way up to now, and even us as well. They were much more concerned with their own power and control, just as we are. And in this case, control is controlling how God reveals himself to us. Right? and how they come and how we come to him. This preoccupation with themselves makes them blind to who Jesus actually is. 
And this is how they become so blind that they miss the person of Jesus in the midst of figuring out the details of what he's done. They don't get him. But they're not the only ones that seem to be blind to Jesus and how his person radically changes everything. The disciples aren't much better at seeing Jesus for who he is either. I mean, come on, right? They're worried about Jesus being angry with them for packing only one loaf of bread, right? For forgetting to pack literal physical bread. I mean, how were they supposed to feed 13 hungry grown adults from one loaf of bread when Jesus had just fed 4,000, right? With just a few loaves and a few small fish. I mean, Matthew 15 tells us there were 4,000, the number 4,000 was only the men, and so there would have been several times more people because when you count the women and the children, right? And so maybe Jesus was just all breaded out, right? He's just like, look, guys, I'm, I've just too much bread. I can't do any more. Don't ask me, right? Maybe, maybe that was the case, but probably not, right? Okay. How could they possibly think that Jesus was admonishing them for forgetting literal bre bread when there's a prolific bread maker in the boat with them, right? Weren't they listening as well? I mean, Jesus specifically talks about the Pharisees and Herod, right? The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Did they just miss the whole, like, naming of the leavens? Like, they clearly weren't listening closely. How could they not put together that Jesus is instructing them about the conflict with the Pharisees that they had just left? About the Pharisaical attitude of unbelief that they should be wary of. And so as we look at the disciples, it's like they're just there. They're not really paying attention. They're not really meditating on it. They're just letting all the events wash over them. They're sort of absorbed with the physical, the temporal concerns facing them, like where they're going to get the next meal, all of that, right? And that's important, right? We've all got to eat at some point. Like, we're probably hungry right now, right, in this room, thinking about the lunch that's to come. It's important. But they seem to completely miss the spiritual component of what Jesus is doing and what that points to. And in some ways, it's like they're taking Jesus for granted, they're excited to be with him, to be counted among the inner circle of this great man who does great things. They're, counted, they're excited to be with him, to be in his presence. They're excited about all the popularity that he's gaining through his miracles. They're, they're really happy to be there. But that's as far as it seems to go. And don't get me wrong, simply being with Jesus is awesome, right? That's important. That's really like a great thing. But while they're with him, they don't seem to get him. They don't really seem to understand who he is. And so in that sense, because they don't understand him, they are not his friends. They're his entourage. They're just sort of going along with him, right? But Jesus rightly should expect for them, at the very least, to be paying attention and making sort of these normal conversational connections. And that's why Jesus gets after them really good in verses 18. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Have your, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And for the seven, 
and the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And he sa- they said to them, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And so we know the disciples understand what has happened. They're able to recount the facts. They're quick and precise, but their knowledge is a superficial one. They haven't reflected on the meaning of the loaves. In fact, they, it doesn't seem to have occurred to them at all that reflecting on the events of the day would have been a good idea. And that's true blindness, right? It's not just that you don't see, that you don't see what's going on, but that you can't see, that seeing is in fact a completely foreign concept, that it never occurs to you to see. That's true blindness. And so they're, they're truly blind to the meaning of Jesus' teaching and work. They haven't thought through what Jesus' work says about Jesus' identity. And all of this really points, both the Pharisees and the disciples, point to how hopeless the situation was. No one seems to be getting it. No one seems to be capable of getting it. And so even the people that should have gotten it don't. But of course there's hope because the gospel never leaves us in blindness and despair. It always moves us. And we see hope in two places. First, we can see it in the fact that Jesus fed people abundantly. This is verses 1 through uh, 10, right? That whole section about feeding people. Jesus is probably aware of the fact that that the disciples are really dense, right? Just because he wants them to have discerned this deeper meaning doesn't mean that he thinks that they will. Right? They're really dense. They haven't gotten it all the way up to this point. We're eight chapters in, right? So seven full chapters. They still haven't gotten it. He understands and knows who they are, but yet he feeds them. He continues to feed his people in the midst of their unbelief, in the midst of their doubts, in the midst of their blindness. And I love the fact that the 4,000, right? The feeding of the 4,000 comes hot on the heels of the pleas of the Syrophoenician woman that we talked about last week. Right Back in Mark 7, which we talked about last week, Jesus encountered this Gentile woman who was begging for Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And so listen to their exchange. Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first, not, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And those crumbs... Give her exactly what she wants, that her child would be healed. And if we go back, come back to Mark 8, the crowd is made up predominantly of Gentiles, right? And so we see two separate feedings, feedings for Jews back in Mark 6, and then Mark 8, a feeding for the Gentiles. And what does that mean? It means that the dogs are getting fed. The dogs, Gentiles like you and me, godless, sinful people, aren't getting crumbs. They're getting their fill. Mark 8.8 says that they ate and were satisfied. And more than that, seven whole baskets were left over. Now, you're thinking, okay, well, they're what kind of baskets? These aren't small baskets. The word for basket here is the same word that is used in Acts to describe the basket that, that Paul is put in to be lowered through the wall. So it's a human-sized basket, right? And they get seven of them, and they're huge, right? So this is grace, right? This is 
This is seeing seven full baskets full of crumbs left over for the Gentiles. That's an abundant grace, right? An abundant grace that gives far more than we could possibly imagine for dogs like us, right? And the second place we see hope is in the small three-letter word, yet. If we go back to verses uh, 17 to 21, in those rapid-fire questions that admonish the disciples, we see Jesus asking, do you not yet perceive or understand? The word yet brings within it an expected change. There is a reality that will be true, but is not currently true. The word yet tells us that there will be a time when we will perceive, when we will understand. The word yet tells us that the Lord is working toward our being able to perceive and understand. So friends, in the here and now, we are just like the disciples and the Pharisees. We don't, we don't see who Jesus is very well. We're so often blinded by our sin, by our own categories, by our own pride, and yet, yet, that is not our destiny. Because while we cannot see Jesus, he sees us, right? While we cannot see Jesus, he sees us. Remember, he surveyed the crowd and he saw a sheep without a shepherd, right? He had compassion on them. When he surveys the crowd, he sees their great need of bread lest they faint on the way home. And so he sees our need as well, not for bread that leaves you hungry, but for the bread of life. In John's gospel, chapter 6, this is what Jesus says about being the bread of life. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Did you hear that? Everyone who looks and believes in Jesus will have eternal life. He wins that life on the cross. Jesus took all that sin, all the wrath that comes with it, all the blindness and arrogance and preoccupation with ourselves and all the condemnation that we deserve on the cross, and he took all of that into the, into the grave, and he left it there when he rose again from the dead on the third day, so that we might look upon him and have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 tells us, for we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. My friends, this is our hope this morning, that we are presently, fully known in Christ, and that in the future, we will know him as he knows us, right? That we will know him fully and completely. Do you get this? That he sees us and we too will one day see clearly the Lord Jesus in all of his glory. That is our hope. And as we wrap up this morning, I've said that one day we will see Jesus clearly but right now we don't see him very well. And Jesus knows this, right? He knew that it would be hard for us who are in him to perceive and understand without something that we could actually see, something that we could taste, something that we could touch. And so he left us visible words, as Augustine calls them. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are these visible words 
Remember how the Pharisees demanded a sign? Well, these sacraments, that table, is a sign for us. In the Reformed tradition, we say that the, the sacraments are a sign and seal of the benefits of the new covenant, that they point us to and, see and, signif- and seal, they signify that these things are true to us. And so if, in a few minutes, we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There Paul says that we ought to examine ourselves and to discern Christ and his gospel, to see him and his gospel. Christ has given us a sign. Let us not be like the disciples who are undiscerning and blind. Let us not be like the, the Pharisees who are wrapped up in, in themselves or in ourselves. No, let us live in light of the fact that we are made new in Christ. Let's look upon him to see the grandeur of his person and gospel, to see our salvation in him. And as we do so, let us come to the table in repentance, resting in him, resting in faith that he has paid it all and that he has made us new and that he has opened our eyes that we might see and receive eternal life. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this great, great passage that reminds us that you love us and that we are a work in progress. Lord, we thank you for that little word yet, that we yet trust in you, that we are waiting for you to change who we are and that someday we will be made like you that we will be conformed fully to your likeness. Lord, would you feed us continually in our unbelief in this present day and age when we are sinners through and through. But Lord, you have delivered us from that sin. And Lord, would this table remind us of that great hope that we have in you, that we are presently forgiven, that we are presently known, and that we are presently seen. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please remember also that we ask that you stick around um, for a quick thing after uh, the service. Now, hear the benediction from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Please be seated.